it's with some great frequency that um, people would come up to me and ask me, okay, Pastor Dan, how can I have a deeper relationship with the Lord? I, I want to have a more intimate walk with God. I want to have a more vibrant and dynamic uh, spiritual life. How do I do that? They're desiring that in their life. And you're probably in this room today. In fact, all of us should desire that. But you may be here tonight saying, yeah, I want a deeper, uh, more vibrant, thriving, flourishing relationship with the Lord. How do I accomplish that? And normally what I'll do is I'll ask, well, how do you think you get that? You know, before I give my pastoral response, how do you think you get a deeper walk with the Lord? How is it that you grow in intimacy with God? And normally what I get is a list of things. Well, I, you know, I, I know I really don't read God's words. So I probably sh- should do that or at least read it more. Maybe I should study more or devote myself to memorizing scripture, meditating on it. Oh, my prayer life really isn't that strong, so I should pray more. I should, should develop and cultivate this rhythm of prayer, you know, or it could be any number of things, maybe fasting. You know, I've never fasted in my life. Maybe if I fast, that will uh, draw me closer to the Lord and I can have a deeper walk with give, give or serving or giving or any of host of other things or activities that they mention, right? There's this correlation in our hearts and minds and things we know that a certain set of activities could generally produce a, a certain desired result that we might have or a goal that we are trying to achieve. And, and of course, there are things that the Bible instructs us to do. We call these activities spiritual disciplines. You've probably heard that term. You've probably used that terminology yourself, spiritual activities, spiritual disciplines, things we do with the intent of drawing closer to God or deepening our relationship to the Lord. And as I've always shared here and we've taught in the past, there are some challenges with the practice of the spiritual disciplines. And the challenge is that in the doing of these spiritual disciplines, sometimes they're not done with the proper motivation. That these disciplines become an end in and of themselves. The disciplines are done as a mean of obtain, means of obtaining grace or merit or favor or approval or acceptance from God. That if I do them, then I'll be loved by God or I'll be accepted by God. Or then God will be, feel obligated to draw closer to me as I'm drawing closer to him. As if doing these things kind of becomes uh, a magnet that, that attracts God to us. You ever play with a magnet and you put it close to something that's metallic and, and you just hold it out there and then eventually you start seeing that move into the gravitational pull of the magnet. And sometimes we treat the spiritual disciplines in this fashion. If I pray, if I do this, if I, if I fast, if I get into God's word, it's like God, it's like, it's like the, it's the hack, right? Our spiritual life hack that will draw God magically to us. But we are good gospel Bible-believing Christians, right? Gospel-centered Christians. We know that that is not the proper uh, motivation or how we go about engaging in the spiritual disciplines. The proper motivation doesn't flow from our doing. It flows out of our being. It flows out of what we already have in God. We are already in union with Christ Jesus. We don't need to be drawn to God or God drawn to us. We already have him. He already has us, right? We have been placed into Christ Jesus as a result of the new birth. 
There aren't things that we have to do for God to love us more than he already loves us. For God to give us grace more so than he's already given us in Christ Jesus. I'm already accepted by God. So me reading the Bible more doesn't go, oh, now, now, I, now Dan's a good guy. Yeah, 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 that, that's, that's what I was looking for. And then now he favors me or now, now he favors you in the doing of these things. We already have these things. So we can enter into these activities, these spiritual disciplines, whatever you want to call them now, out of joy and out of enjoyment with full assurance that we already have God. He's already done everything he can to draw us to himself in Christ Jesus. He has reconciled to us by the blood of Christ Jesus. So what on earth can you do to draw God to you that is greater than that? Now, there's nothing. We already have that. So it changes the motivation that we engage in these activities in. Because oftentimes when we begin to talk, talk about these things, and we'll do some of that in today's message, we start feeling an overwhelming burden in our life. These are the things I have to do in order to get that. And I'm telling you, you already have that, so you can do those freely and joyfully and, and in a grace-filled kind of way. All right? So important as we begin to talk to that. But here's what we do know. There are things we do need to do. There are things in scriptures we're commanded to do. There are certain activities that the Bible commands us to do, right? We talked in chapter 2. What, are we, what is the church supposed to do when they gather? Pray. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion for the church. The church prays. What are men to do? Men are to lift holy hands in prayer without contentiousness, without quarreling, without anger. There are things that we are to do. The Bible commands us to do that. We're called to holiness. We're called to obedience in our walk with the Lord. But how do we do that with the right motivation, the right attitudes, the right heart, right? Appropriately driven by who we are already in Christ Jesus. And our passage is going to deal with some of that today. Last week, we began to see the way the gospel was being distorted by some false teachers in the church, even there at the church at Ephesus. They were teaching what Paul described as demonically inspired teachings of demons. Deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, and these hypocritical liars seduced by those deceitful spirits were now drawing away the believers through certain uh, uh, practices, these ascetic teachings, forbidding marriage and forbidding certain kinds of food. They were adding rules and regulations to the gospel in such a way that it ceased to be the true gospel. That's not what they were teaching. And these false teachings, these doctrines of demons were causing some to depart from the faith. It's a, it's a big theme in the pastoral letters there, are First and Second Timothy and Titus. And so, so, so Paul is warning Timothy, his apostolic delegate, watch out for these things. Watch. If he started his letter warning him, right? He started there in chapter 1 warning him of these kind of things. Warning him of those who are teaching a different doctrine. Because these things do not deliver what they promise. And even those who were teaching, hey, yes, believe Jesus, but, but 
Also, listen, you need to deny yourself these bodily things. You need to, to, to stop marrying, right? The celibate life is, is the more spiritual life. And if you avoid, you know, rich foods, lavish foods like meats and sweets, you know, then you're going to have a deeper spirituality, a more intimate walk with the Lord. And Paul is saying, wait a minute, that is a distortion. Those things are, are the good things of creation. God has given us all these things to be received with thanksgiving, These things have already been consecrated by the word of God, his declaration that they are good and our prayer of thanksgiving to God. So these are false things and and we need to avoid them because denying ourselves those good things doesn't make us more holy, doesn't make us more righteous, doesn't make us more good. Christ alone is the one who does that for us. So let's turn to our text so we can see how God's word not only instructs us to obedience and holiness, but how we're to do that in a gospel-fueled way. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Hear the words of the Lord. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. These are the words of the Lord. Now, Paul exhorts Timothy here at the beginning to put these things. He says, if you put these things before the brother, what things? Well, yes, everything we talked about uh, just a few moments ago, everything he wrote to Timothy regarding false teachers and false teaching, its origination and and the cause of it, uh, some departing from the faith. But these things incorporates all apostolic teaching, everything in this letter, everything in all of the apostolic writings, all of the holy and authoritative scripture of God is in view when he says these things. It's a term he uses frequently. It's shorthand for the faith, the words of the faith, for the gospel. It's shorthand for good doctrine or sound doctrine. So these are the things that Timothy is to put before the brothers. Everything we saw at the end of chapter 3, he's to teach the church how they ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. It's God's house, it's God's rules, and God's people need to know how to conduct themselves. So all of those things are viewed in this. That's what Timothy is supposed to put before the brothers. And I love that he says that. Put that before the brothers. It's the family of God, of which Timothy is a part of which all of God's people here that gather as a church are part of. Timothy is to to teach the brothers, fueled by a love for the family of God, fueled by his, his authority as a leader in the household of God. He is to put these good things before the brothers, teach them these things, warn them, all of those things, equip them, you know, so that they don't depart from the faith, so they don't shipwreck their faith, so they don't go after these uh, different doctrines that were being presented. Put these things before the brothers. The imagery there is of someone 
serving, right? In fact, he calls him a good servant here in a moment, right? He'll be a good servant, which is the word for minister, diakonos. We talked about that. But he's not talking about the official church leader role of deacon, but in general, serving, right? You will be a good servant if you do these things, a good servant of Christ Jesus if you put this before the brothers. And the imagery there is of someone waiting on a table or serving dinner guests at the table who bring them food. This is what he's to do. He's a servant of the Lord, a minister of the Lord, serving the people of God, setting these things, the word of the faith, the gospel, scripture before the people of God. But he's a servant. And this this is important here because it isn't Timothy's message. And it's not even Paul's message, even though Paul's the one writing to Timothy and telling him these things. We know that Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. His authority is derived from the Lord. Timothy, his authority is derived from Paul and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his gospel. It's his message. The Lord is the one who has the message for the people of God. And Paul and Timothy and all faithful servants of the Lord, that's what they're doing. They're putting that message before the Lord. Betsy and I uh, went to dinner with some friends on Friday night. And at the conclusion of our meal, the chef came out to our table. Nice young man, but he spent some time with us. He was wanting to make sure everything was prepared to our liking, you know, did we enjoy it, you know, what are our thoughts on it, he was telling us about the next menu that was uh, going to be coming up soon, a a delightful young fellow, that was a really nice gesture, but he's the one who prepared our meal, but he wasn't the one who served our meal, no, the other young lady who uh, was very gracious is the one who waited at our table, she set the meal this chef prepared for us. And oftentimes what happens in the church is the servants of the Lord forget that they're not the chef, that they're the waiter, they're the servant, so they have their own message or their own interpretation of the message or their own opinion of the message to set before the brothers, and that's not what they're supposed to do. Paul says to Timothy, you're a good servant of Christ Jesus if you set these things, not your things, not your message, not what you think they want, but what Christ Jesus has delivered to us. The faith entrusted once for all and delivered to the saints of God. You'll be a good servant if you do these things. And that message is the gospel of Jesus Christ and and the word of God and apostolic teaching. So Timothy doesn't have, I don't have, no pastor has the freedom to craft their own message to set before the people. I don't have freedom to invent my own new take, new revelation, newfangled way of delivering something that has already been instructed, and all we have to do is set it before the people of God. It's why we labor to teach the way we teach through the Scriptures. It's to set the whole counsel of God before the people of God, because it's not my message. It's Christ's message. And a good servant is the one who is faithful And setting before the brothers the words of the faith. A good servant is the one who is faithful and does not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Whether it's in season or out of season. Whether the people want to hear it or they don't want to hear it. Whether it challenges the prevailing view of culture or not. The good servant is the one who is faithful to do that. And there's that promise there. If you do this, then you will be. 
And you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. It's faithfulness. Now, I know this is applying here to a church leader, a a teacher in the church of Jesus Christ. But isn't that for all believers? We're all called to be faithful to his word. We're all called to faithfully instruct and teach others in our day to day. We're all called to disciple others in the faith. But we need to be faithful. We need to be good servants and making sure that what we set before others outside of the context of a teaching environment like this, that we're also being faithful to the word, to the message, to the gospel, and to the word of God. And would that more pastors and churches would strive for faithfulness rather than innovation, rather than what's attractive to unbelievers and to the world, what's going to play well out there, what's going to platform their celebrity pastor, and that we would just be faithful to the message and just be good servants. We're serving his meal, his food that he has prepared And he's the one who died for his church, so we don't have room or freedom to redesign that. Notice what he says here, too. Timothy is also to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine which he has followed. You see that there in the second part of verse 6. So the same things that Timothy is to set before the brothers are the very same things that Timothy needs for himself, for his own spiritual life and sustenance the same things is what he needs this word training is important in this passage you see it repeated there it's three times it's repeated but the training in this verse is a different word it means something different than it means the other two times that we're going to see it here the word for training here in the greek means to be nourished think of a baby being nourished by the milk of its mothers means to be raised up in Right? He needs to be raised up in the words of the faith and the good doctrine. Just like a baby is dependent on that nourishment for their survival, so too Timothy uh, is dependent on the nourishment of the words of faith and the good doctrine for his own spiritual life. And if Timothy does not continue uh, being nourished by God's word, by what he has already received from Paul, then he's not going to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And he's going to waffle in his own spiritual life as well. So he has to eat the same meal that he is serving to others. Okay, That's important. How can we or he commend the words of the faith, the good doctrine, if he is not partaking in them of himself? And I wish that didn't happen more often than it does, but It's the truth. There's a lot of people who teach who do not partake and are not nourished by the word of God themselves. They study because they got to teach. But they're not being transformed and nourished and built up and equipped by the very words that they need. It's like going to a restaurant. Have you ever done this? I've done this a few times and it always baffles me. Especially if it's a new place, you know, that we go to. And I ask the, the waiter or the waitress, hey, what do you enjoy eating here? What's your favorite dish? And then sometimes you get this crazy response. I don't really have one. I don't eat here. (laughs) Which makes you wonder if you should even be eating there, right? (laughs) That should be a sign. Let me just get up and make my way out. Oh, you know, I forgot my wallet in the car. And just hightail it out of there. Uh, If they won't eat there, why should you eat there? And this is kind of the concept here. You know, 
Timothy, you're serving people this, this feast of God's word, this meal, but you're not eating it of yourself. How crazy, how crazy is that? A minister who doesn't dine on the gospel has no business teaching the people of God. And Timothy will only be an effective uh, as a minister if he's daily sustaining himself and nourishing himself in the words of the faith. Feeding on the truths of the gospel must be the daily task that this minister engages in. It's the diet he must consume. That's the nourishment Paul has in mind here. To be trained up in the words of the faith, to be nourished by the words of the faith. And every Christian needs to be nourished in the same way, brothers and sisters. This isn't just for Timothy. This isn't just for an elder of the church. This isn't just for a deacon or a church leader. This is for you and it is for me. In 2 Peter 2.2, the apostle there writes, Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Those of you who have children or have little babies now, we have a few babies in the room, know that babies don't just crave milk. They will destroy you in their attempt to get spiritual milk. That's how much they crave it. That's how much they long for it. That's how much they need it. That's how much they depend on it. And Peter's saying, just like that, that's the imagery I want you to have in mind. You ought to crave the spiritual milk of the word of God. Their nourishment from the word of God. Do you desire God's word that way? Do you crave the word of God and to be nourished by God's word with the same craving and intensity and desire as a newborn baby wants to suckle at his mother's chest? We should be desiring it that way. It's the only way you will grow in your faith. It's the only way you'll grow up into your salvation. And here's the truth we're going to see from this passage. You cannot divorce growing in godliness, which is the theme of what we're talking about today, uh, from our need of nourishment in the word of God. They go hand in hand. And that growth in godliness will not happen apart from the word of God. So if you're feeling weak and anemic today in your spiritual life, if you're one of those saying, I do want a deeper, I hunger for a deeper walk with the Lord, I don't feel like I have that, you may want to evaluate what are you nourishing yourself in. Because if you're not nourishing yourself in the word of God, you're starving your soul of the very thing it needs for its sustenance and thriving. So Paul here, once again, is going to warn Timothy to avoid the different teachings, the doctrines of devils, the false teachings, what he calls here irreverent, silly myths. And that's kind of a funny term uh, in the Greek there, right? Uh, the word irreverent means profane or blasphemous or godless. But silly myths literally means the superstition of old women. The silly myths that old women tell. You know what those are? They're all silly. Some of you know what those are. How many of you uh, moms, when you were pregnant, got a lot of lovely superstitious things you know, advising you, you know, uh, well, if your belly's here, that's this. If your belly's down here, it's that. Or, you know, tie a little string around your wrist. You know, all, there's all sorts of, we call them all wives' tales, right? The silly tales of old women, he's saying avoid them. But now he's using that, right, <clears throat> uh, just by way of hyperbole here to exaggerate here 
this, that, or what these things are. They're, they're silly because they do not produce what they promise. In fact, those things are causing people to depart from the faith, to deviate, to neglect the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul opens his letter to Timothy saying, you, those people teaching those things, you need to serve them a cease and desist letter. They need to stop teaching these things because they're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And those things stand in direct contrast to the good doctrine, to the words of the faith. So, Timothy, you as the minister, make sure you're not listening to those yourself. Make sure you're avoiding them. You're staying away even as you're warning others to do the same things. They will not provide the nourishment God's people needs, the very nourishment Timothy himself needs. In contrast to the life-giving, soul-satisfying, sustaining nourishment of the words of the faith, irreverent, irreverent silly myths are like junk food. I always liken false teaching to cotton candy. You eat cotton candy, what does it do? It just, just dissolves in your mouth. Yeah, it's kind of, it can get nasty. You eat too much of it. I mean, I get a, a tummy ache from those right there. Right? It's like kind of, it dissolves in your mouth. You get a sugar rush, but there's nothing to it. It, it doesn't satisfy you. It, it doesn't fill you. It certainly doesn't nourish you. If you eat too much of it, it'll rot your teeth. It'll make you sick. That's exactly the contrast being drawn here between the good doctrine and irreverent silly myths, this false teaching, these different doctrines. It always pains me greatly to see people go after distortions of the gospel when they, they talk about, you know, um, you know the, something that they're listening to. And I'm like, man, don't be listening to that. It's not nourishing. It's not the good doctrine. It's not the words of the faith. It's a distortion. It's an aberration. It's, it can't nourish you like the words of faith can. This is the only true gospel. There only has been and only ever will be one true gospel. Everything else is a distortion of that. Those false teachings or those aberrant teachings are like a sugar rush. Cotton candy in our mouth. Now Paul warns Timothy that that's exactly though what some people want. They want the cotton candy. They want the junk food, much like a kid does, right? You set before them a healthy, beautiful, delicious meal, and then you set a bowl of candy, Skittles, or something next to it. You know, what do they want? The Skittles. Is that good for them? No, not at all. Not at all. But look how Paul warns Timothy here in his other letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 3 and 4. He writes to him here, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to what? Suit their own passions. What does that tell you? They want it. They want it. And while I might be baffled why people listen to that, the reality is God's word says they're listening to it because that's what they want. It, they're tickling, their ears are being tickled. There's an itch that's being scratched here, right? Having itching ears. And what? In verse 4, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The same thing he just told him in his first letter. And the same thing he's going to write to Titus. The same thing other apostolic teachers warn about. We have to be careful. Do you like consuming junk food? And thinking that's going to nourish you? 
that that's going to equip you and build you up as a follower of Jesus Christ? Or are you being nourished by the word of God? People wander off into myths when they stop feeding on God's word. When they start wanting something more than God's word, thinking they need something more, a new revelation, a fresh word, a new dream, a new vision, some secret knowledge, some hidden mystery, something that the church has never heard before. Itching ears. Accumulating teachers after ourselves to suit our own passions. We have to be careful what we are nourishing our soul with. And if it's not God's word, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in great trouble. So think about that. What does your spiritual diet consist of? Because that's what Paul is talking about here. The first thing you need, Timothy, is you need to have the right diet. Now, he's not talking about going on a diet, right? We go on a diet to lose weight and other things. No, I'm talking about diet in the general sense of the word. This is how we should be nourishing and feeding our body, right? So that it's healthy and living and thriving. And Paul is saying, this is your diet, Timothy. And this is the diet you need to set before the people of God as well. So stop eating junk food and start feasting on the words of life. So instead of listening to irreverent, silly myths, false teachings, different doctrines, things that tickle the ears, he says, rather train yourself, Timothy, for what? For godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Now, it's the word train here, but it's a different word than the word to be nourished or raised up here, right? It's different from that. This word uh, for training here that we translate as training uh, is the word for the kind of physical training and discipline that athletes perform in order to compete. It's the Greek word gymnazo, gymnazo. And in that word, you can hear a word that we derive from it for our English word, gym or gymnasium. Okay? It can also be gymnastics. Right? So it, that's the word. And that word means to train and to undergo discipline. But interestingly, this word literally means to train or to discipline naked. We're not going to practice that today. Fear not. Ain't going to happen. Okay? We'll explain that here in a moment. Paul is using here a metaphor drawn from the world of athletic training and competition. Where did athletes train in ancient Ephesus? They trained in the gymnasium, the gymnazo. And these were usually large outdoor public spaces. Later on, there were structures built, right? More formal, large, colossal buildings that became the gymnasiums there in Asia Minor and as part of Greek culture because of their fascination and love for athletic competition, for sports. But even in, in these gymnasiums, they, people also came to learn art and literature and medicine and science and other things as well. But there, they would, athletes would train for what they were going to be competing in. And they would do this in the buff, without clothing. Kind of gross, isn't it? That's how they trained. Why, why on earth would they do that? Well, they did that because they believed that clothing hindered their movement to such a degree that it did not allow them to perform whatever it is that they were training for. It would hinder them in some way. Well, and you think about it, all right, we don't compete in the nude, but think about a runner. 
running a race, running track. They're not wearing long robes, are they? It'd be kind of funny to watch people tripping themselves in robes, running. No, they don't wear that. Do swimmers compete wearing jeans and a sweatshirt in the water? Some of them probably, you wish they wore those things. No one, they, they, they don't. They compete in the, the lightest fabric possible, wearing the least amount of fabric possible so that their movements would not be hindered. Thankfully, sumo wrestlers wear large diapers so we don't have to get a disturbing picture and we'd have to bleach our eyes. But athletes exercise and compete in the lightest and least amount of clothing possible so that they won't be hindered. It'll make the runner go faster. It'll make them cut through the water, slice through the water quicker. They are unhindered. So think about what Paul is saying to Timothy here, using the metaphor of the athletic training in the gymnasium as it relates to what we're going to talk about here in a moment. Exercise, discipline yourself in the nude. Just like athletes are competing out there and training out there, training naked, unhindered, strip away from yourself, Timothy, everything that is hindering you, everything that is slowing you down, everything that is unnecessary for your spiritual life, and continue to discipline yourself for for godliness. See, the training here in view is not one for a certain physical outcome. People exercise and people train, right, because, yes, some are going to be competing, but some just want to, you know, strengthen their body, tone up their body, build larger muscles. And we know all of those things requires discipline. You cannot go to the gym one week and not darken the door of the gym until three months later and expect to see progress and development. If you want to lose weight, you don't just eat a salad today and then engorge yourself for the next few weeks on pizza and other things, and then eat a salad again or, or something four or five weeks later. No, it requires, it requires discipline. If you're, tra- if you're doing strength training, what do you need to do? It requires, yes, lifting weights, but it requires repetitions. It requires increasing resistance by adding further weights, and sometimes lifting until your muscles are burning and and, 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 and then you do it again and again and again. It's not a one-time thing. It's a repetitive, continual thing that requires discipline. When you think of world-class athletes, world-class athletes, they out-train everyone else. Their lives are disciplined like no one else's life is disciplined. They eat in a, in a vastly different manner than others do. They are training when everyone is still asleep. And after everyone turns in for the night, they're back at it again. Right? They, their lives are disciplined. They have a rigorous disciplined training regimen. But Paul is saying that that's the metaphor we're drawing from. Right? There's, that's how you should be engaging in this other dynamic here. But it's not physical training or a physical outcome that's in mind. But he doesn't say that it's not important though, right? He's not not saying that bodily training isn't important. Because he writes right after this, bodily training is of some value. Sadly, sometimes in the church we do not talk about the need for bodily training and to be physically healthy. And how the importance of taking care of our bodies so that we can be in service to the Lord and to our families and to our community and others here. No, he's saying bodily training is of some value. So he's not denouncing all bodily training. 
And you think he would because he's just talking about people who are teaching that, you know, there's, this is the pathway to godliness by denying yourself bodily, right? To, to abstain from certain bodily disciplines. No, no, exercise is good. We should all do it. We should all engage it. I'm always encouraged seeing the guys encouraging one another in physical fitness. We should glorify God by taking care of our bodies. We should eat healthier. We should exercise. It has value, does it not? We grow stronger. We become more agile. We become more flexible. We gain stamina. We gain endurance. Ultimately, we'll be physically healthier by doing that. Right? There's many benefits to bodily training. Even Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 9, he says that he disciplines his body and keeps it under control. But this will only have value in the present life. The benefits are temporal. They're only for the here and now. Bodily training will not benefit you for eternity. That means I can't take my ripped body into glory. Why are you laughing? (laughs) There's only one thing he mentions here that has value, that has benefits that last on into eternity. And that's the goal of the training that Paul has in mind. It isn't to grow bigger muscles, at least not physical muscles. It's godliness. Godliness, he writes, holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. So let's talk about godliness, because godliness is a major theme in the pastoral letters. Read through those three letters, and you will see godliness mentioned a number of times. We last talked about godliness as it relates to uh, the modest apparel and attire of women who profess godliness by the way they adorn themselves with the gospel. It's a very important theme. The word for godliness is used 15 times in the New Testament. It is uh, found 13 times in the pastorals and nine times right here in First Timothy. It's a big deal. It's an important theme for Paul in his writing and in this letter. A basic definition of godliness, are, uh, we could substitute with the word piety. The word itself, uh, eusebia in the Greek, means uh, reverence or respect. And that word was, is found a lot in writing in terms of reverence for rulers and magistrates or the respect children ought to have towards their parents. We translate it as godliness. So if we want to define godliness here, we need to define it in light of that. It's reverence, but reverence for what? It's reverence for God, isn't it? It's godliness. It's towards God, right? The godly reverences God, has a reverential fear of the Lord. Now, in the gospel, it's, 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 a, it's a reverence for the Lord, a fear of the Lord that's mingled with love for God. Mingled with that, that knowledge of what has, God has done for us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Godliness is not just words of devotion, right? Just, just spouting off that we are devout followers of the Lord, It is the reverential worship and awe of God that flows into a life of obedience. True godliness has as its outworking a holy and obedient life. They're not separated. You cannot be godly if you're not obedient. Okay, Because the the person who reverences God and has this reverential awe and fear of God is also going to do what God instructs us uh, to do. 
John Calvin wrote on this passage that godliness is the beginning, middle, and end of Christian living. George Knight, in his commentary on the pastoral epistles, defines godliness as active, kinetic obedience that springs from a reverent awe of God. Active obedience that springs from, flows from, comes from, is produced from a reverent awe of God. And lastly, Kent Hughes uh, writes that God-struck doers of the word are the only ones that that can rightly be called godly. You cannot be godly if you're not doing what God tells you to do. So godliness spills over and out into conduct. And it's conduct that is fleshed out, lived out, done by those who have been captivated by Christ and who've been transformed by the gospel. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about our sanctification, isn't it? Sanctification is growth in godliness. We can rightly say we are being sanctified, right? Which is holiness produced in us, right? Godliness that, that now flows out into our behavior, into how we live, what we do, how we think. Shapes our attitudes and forms our way of life. Paul says we are to train ourselves for that. Discipline ourselves to reverence God so that it affects our actions, attitudes, conduct, and behavior. We could say that the godly person is rightly God-centered. Everything that person does, the godly does, right, uh, has God in view. Everything about their life is not just their, not just coming to church, not just serving in the church, but their work, their play, how they are with their family, how they interact in their community. Every arena of life has God in view. That's how godliness plays itself out in our life. If we are growing in godliness, growing in our fear of the Lord, it is going to manifest into right actions in our life. Conduct that would be deemed as holy, righteous, to use righteous in that word, in that, in that frame of thinking. Paul writes, godliness has value that holds promise in the present life and the life to come. The godly person is spiritually fit. The godly person who trains for godliness is spiritually fit in every way. And godliness, he says here, has benefits here and there, Right? Here and in eternity. Unlike bodily training, which has temporary benefits, only here, godliness has value in every way, here and there. But how does it value? How is there value and benefits here? What, what, is, what is he referring to that? Well, just like we saw bodily training has certain values, right? We'll feel better, we'll be stronger, we'll be more agile. Godliness has value here now as well. In the present, think about how godliness works itself out. The person who's doing what God instructs them to do. The one who is obeying God at a, at a reverential awe and worship and fear of the Lord. That is fueled by the gospel. How does that inform our life? Well, we have the peace of God in our life. There's peace. There's wellness of body. There's wellness of mind. There's wellness uh, of soul. There's a clear conscience. Right? Uh, Godliness helps us overcome unforgiveness and bitterness, resentment and depression, anxiety, fear. Think about how others view the godly in in the general sense. People are attracted to godly people. Why? Because they know they're faithful, they're loyal, 
They're people of their word. Some would say they look up to those who, who exemplify godliness uh, in their life. Godliness will keep you from getting into trouble, right? If you're obeying the Lord, you're not breaking the law. <laughs> godliness has present benefits in this life. Generally, your life will go well in the pursuit of godliness, in your training for godliness, in your exercise of godliness. But he's saying that's all fine and dandy in the here and now, and that's good, but it also has value in eternity. Because there we will receive everything God has promised for us in Christ Jesus. Godliness leads to that. Holds promise here and holds promise in glory as well. That's why we should pursue it. And that's why he writes here, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is the next of the trustworthy sayings that Paul uses in the pastoral epistles. Now, sometimes he writes this as something coming after, but I think looking at this, rightly it's about the statement he just made concerning godliness, how it has present value and has eternal value as well. He's adding an exclamation point to that statement about the lasting benefits and promises of godliness. That's a promise that you can take to the bank. That's why that saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Train for godliness. Pursue godliness. Exercise yourself unto godliness. Bodily training's cool. You need it. Do it. But keep it in its proper perspective. That will not have eternal payoff. If you don't do bodily training, you might go into eternity sooner rather than later. But that's another point. But spiritual training, spiritual fitness, ah, that has benefits here and has benefits for eternity. And you can believe that. So I want you to think here for for a moment. A little self-diagnostic. What are you trusting in? Is your trust largely in temporal things? Is it grounded just in the here and now and eternity is not really in view? It's not a consideration you take in the things that you're doing. I think this is why a lot of people do gravitate to things like the prosperity gospel and the word of faith gospel because it promises to give you things in the here and now. But some... They're only focused on eternity, then, and they just can't wait till the here and now is over. They've given up on this life, and I think that's where we see a lot of Christians walking in defeat and walking in, in, in fear and, and dejection, because they're like, they're just throwing their hands up in this life, I guess, you know, it's the way it's supposed to be, you know, can't wait for glory. And yes, we should live with the hope of glory, but that doesn't mean this life is irrelevant. Train yourself for godliness because it has benefits now and promise for eternity. Don't just train your physical muscles, and I applaud those who are doing that. Keep it up. Make sure you're training your spiritual muscles as well. Make sure you're training and exercising for godliness because that has the greater payoff. How do we become godly? Let's kind of drill down to that here. How do we become godly? How do we train for it? Now, I wish Paul would now give me a list. (laughs) 
He doesn't do that here, though. At least he doesn't give us specific details to Timothy. Here's how you do it. A, B, C, D. Now, you could take the things that he says after. Those are going to be important for training for godliness. But he doesn't specifically state it that way. And we're going to start covering that uh, next week here. But as always, right, as we're studying scripture, context is important, right? What is the context here? And that's going to fill that in for us. How do we become godliness? The, the reality is, I've already said it a few times here already, if you're paying attention, we're going to train for godliness the very same way we nourish ourselves in and by the word of God. How do you train for godliness? The word of God. The word of God. Nothing, brothers and sisters, is going to stir up your affection and love for God and evoke a reverence for God like the word of God. You won't get that apart from God's word. You won't grow in that because we need to grow in the knowledge of God. It's, a, it's an ever-evolving spiral. The more we grow in the knowledge of God, the more we grow in our love for God and the worship of God that's going to stir up to want us to know more about God, that's going to lead to a greater love and affection and reverence for God. And we need the word of God to grow in the knowledge of God. We need the word of God to help us see a greater and grander picture of who God is. We need the word of God to tell us what we need to know about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We need the word of God so that Christ is the most beautiful thing before our eyes. That we will want to exert ourselves unto godliness because of who he is. And we're all going to know that from his word. The disciplined intake, study, and meditation of Scripture is indispensable to our spiritual health and growth and godliness. You won't become godly without the Word of God. That's how necessary it is. That's how essential it is. You can't avoid silly myths if you don't know what those silly myths are by knowing the truth. If you don't have good doctrine, if you don't have sound doctrine, you're susceptible to error. You're not going to be able to discern the false until you know the true. You're not going to stop eating junk food and dine on good teaching, right, until you learn from God's word and begin to be nourished by the word of God. You see how empty those other things and how much God's word fills you and strengthens you and nourishes you. And being trained in God's word and the gospel is going to keep us from getting those spiritual disciplines wrong. We need to pray. We need scriptural intake. We should fast periodically. We should be meditating on scripture. All things that the scripture tells us to do. Things we ought to be engaging in. We should be serving. We should be giving. We should be doing all of these things. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. And how much we need God's word so that we get these things right. And how much we need to train uh, in godliness. Hebrews chapter 5, 11, 14, the writer of Hebrews here uh, is, is going to give a little stinging rebuke to his readers here. He says, about this we have much to say. Right? He's talking about some of the deeper uh, issues and aspects of the faith, right? And he, and he writes, it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic 
principles of the oracles of God. What had they done? They had neglected the word of God. They had neglected the teaching. They had neglected the words of the faith. He says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now, what's he talking about? He's, he's talking about those who he cannot move into teaching them the things that he wants to teach them and instruct them in because they've neglected the basic rudimentary uh, fundamentals of the faith. So this teaching builds upon those. And if you neglected those because you don't know those, I can't teach you these things. You're like a baby who just needs milk. I can't give you a ribeye steak. I can't give you that big potato. I can't give you those fajitas or whatever else. I'm hungry. Okay. (laughs) But solid food, he writes here in verse 14, solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Listen to that. Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Right? That's what training requires. Constant practice. Repetition. Lots of reps. Not just a few. It's how we grow, right? We grow. The word of God trains us, right? And then that springs into joyful obedience, which grows, helps grow us in godliness. But what's the fuel for that? What drives that, right? It's not legalism. It's not asceticism. We've already established that. God's word is the fuel for godliness, The grace of our Lord is the fuel for godliness. We don't do it outside of that. Because if we don't get the gospel right, right, this is where we screw up the spiritual disciplines. And I have people say, but I'm reading God's word and I don't feel like I'm growing. And I'm praying, but I don't feel God's hearing me and answering my prayers. I'm doing, 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 but I don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel like he's for me. I don't feel like he's with me. But good doctrine, sound doctrine, the gospel, the words of truth, if you know it, you know that can't be the case. You know that that's not the truth. So you don't approach the doing of these things from that legalistic perspective or that self-righteous workspace perspective. If I do, then God is obligated to do this. Though God has already done, I can enter into it joyfully and graciously. The legalistic heart says, I'll do this thing to get grace. The grace-fueled, disciplined heart says, because of the grace I've already received, because of what Christ has done for me, because I'm already loved and accepted, I can do this out of love for God and to please Him. The discipline and training Paul talks about here is not legalism. It's joyful obedience. I feel that many have never entered into that because they've got the gospel wrong and they've got God's word wrong and they don't know it. They don't know it. They don't know what God has done for them. Their their God is really tiny and puny and small. And their gospel is weak and anemic. And they feel they still need to add to it. And they still feel like they need to do and perform. So they will have the things they feel that they are lacking. Joyful obedience. It's joyful obedience. Now Paul closes this thought by elevating the hope. That comes from the pursuit of godliness in the Christian life. He writes in verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God. Who is the savior of all people. Especially of those who believe. Now I don't want you to fixate on that last statement. He's the savior of all people. Especially of those who believe. We've already covered this ground before. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Um, 
in part five of our series, we, we really explored, especially looking at 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2, verse 4 here, on this aspect of Paul is not teaching here that all men are going to be saved. Not everyone is going to be saved. Not all people are going to be saved. We have to define our alls like we did in part five. All means all kinds of people, not every single person. Okay? We know that cannot be the case, right? Because in other apostolic teaching in the New Testament, we know how does one come to faith in Jesus Christ? They must believe, which is why he writes, especially of those who what? Believe. The grammatical and literary structure of this statement shows us that, that Paul is making emphasis that he is generally the savior of all people because how else are you saved? You cannot be saved apart from Christ and apart from God. But he's truly the savior of those who believe. And he uses the same literary technique in, in his other letters, right? So it's, he's like adding an emphasis to that, uh, to that point there. There's no salvation apart from God. So we, we're not going to get into that. We've spent a lot of time in part five on that aspect, but it's important that you know that. He's a savior of those who believe. Generally, he's the savior of all because salvation is not found apart from Jesus Christ. Only in the true knowledge of God and what Christ has done for us can anyone obtain salvation. And if you don't believe in that, you're not saved. If you believe that there's other pathways, other ways, other avenues, other faiths, other religions, other gospels, you're not saved and he is not your savior. Sadly, you will perish in your sin. But those who believe, this is what he's driving at, the point here. Now, now notice what he says there, for this we, we toil and strive. And I love how he shifts now to the plural. He's not saying I toil and strive. He uses that language uh, later, and we'll see that in Colossians here in just a moment. But he says, we toil and strive. We're working hard. We're laboring strenuously, right? We're training ourselves for godliness because we're, our hope is set on the living God, the Savior of all people. Your pursuit of godliness is work. It is work. It's hard work. It's strenuous labor. It requires genuine effort. It does not happen automatically. I don't want you to leave here thinking that you can just coast in this Christian life and, you know, it's automatic possession. That's not, that's not what Scripture teaches us, right? Godliness is work, just like exercise. You got to lift weights. You got to run. You got to eat right. And there's constant repetitions. You start small and you work your way up. And you work your way up to further endurance. And when you hit that place again and you meet that goal, you continue on in growth. It is something we do. Now he's talking to Timothy here, but this is for the church. We toil and strive. We all do. It's a collective effort here. Every single one of us has a responsibility to grow in godliness, to be trained in godliness. We all do it. But, he writes here, we have our hope set. And this is where I want you to see that, yes, it's hard work, but it is a joyful, grace-filled work. And a joyful, grace-filled and grace-fueled effort. The beauty of what God has promised us in our pursuit of godliness is that we don't do it all in our strength. It's not all up to us to see that come about, right? 
We don't have to wonder if it's going to have benefits. We don't have to wonder if all of this training and godliness is going to have a payoff. Turn with me to Colossians uh, chapter 1. Just flip over a couple couple of uh, books here uh, to the left. Colossians, and uh, look what he writes here in uh, verse 28 and 29. I love this. He writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's like, here's why we're working. Here's why we're toiling. Here's why we're doing all this. Because he says, for this I toil. It's work. It's effort. Now, he, as, as the apostle, to, to help build up the church, Timothy, to teach and instruct the church, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, to be, to be built up in that, in that teaching, in the sound doctrine. We toil, we labor, we strive. But look what he writes here in 29. Struggling... With all my energy? Is that what he says? My sweat? My effort only? No, he says with his energy that he powerfully works within me. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, we toil, we strive. It's work. Godliness is work. Pursuing godliness. Growing in godliness. But it's not all in my strength. He supplies the strength. He powerfully works in us to produce that godliness in us. What could we accomplish if we knew that it was all in his strength? What could we do if we realize it isn't by my human effort alone that produces this, but he works in us powerfully. He supplies every bit of strength that I need to see this through. That's what he does. That's why we can have confidence that this is something he is going to bring about it will pay off at the end what paul says here and what he writes in verse 10 is that spiritual fitness training and godliness won't leave you disappointed now that ab blaster you bought will leave you disappointed a little stretchy bands you know that you thought was going to give you six pack you know and ripped arms that'll leave you disappointed instead of a six pack you still have now you have a harder keg Those things may leave you disappointed, but training in godliness is going to deliver in this life and it's going to deliver in the next. It will pay off. Pay off. And he grounds the success of the toiling and the striving in our training in godliness in the living God. The Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We studied a couple of weeks ago. There at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul called Christ the mystery of godliness. The mystery, not not something secret. It's been unveiled. Christ has been made manifest. The mystery is solved. It's Jesus Christ. He's the mystery of godliness. And he's the one who makes godliness possible. The grounds of our confidence and training for godliness is Jesus Christ. That's who our hope is set upon. That's the grounds of our assurance that we will grow in godliness. That this training has a payoff. Because Christ is the one who saved us and has gone before us, we can have confidence that our training will produce the intended result. How do I know I'll hit the goal of godliness? Because Christ is the mystery of godliness. How can you be assured that this is worth it, that it won't disappoint And that you'll hit the goal because Christ has promised to see that happen in your life. To see that all the way through to the end. 
We will reach the goal. We will cross the finish line. How comforting is that? How much encouragement does that give us to run this race with endurance and with confidence? It's what the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and we'll close with this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Man, it's so much, so, so rich, this passage. And it says consider him, right? But So you don't grow weary. Because the reality is we grow weary in this life, don't we? We lose heart. We go through times of difficulty where this pursuit of godliness seems so far out of our reach. It seems like it's not worth the effort. It's like we take, you know, two steps forward and ten steps back. Anybody ever feel like that? I know I felt like that in my spiritual life, in in, in this walk of faith. And it's like, where's the growth, God? Still dealing with the same thing, right? Still walking through these things. Still have my mind all jumbled in these areas. And we wonder if it's going to pay off. And this so much in here. There's some who are still hindered by sin. You know, I wish the moment we got saved that this whole body of flesh thing is done with so we won't pursue sinful our sinful desires and proclivities. But he's saying here what? We need to... There's a sin that for some clings so closely. There's a weight some people have laid upon their shoulders that they can't run with endurance. They can't run with freedom. They're not walking in the liberty that Christ has purchased for them. They're struggling to overcome in certain areas of their life. But I love all of the hope that's offered to us here. First of all, he says you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That's the Old Testament saints of the past. That's, you know, all of the ones talked about in the previous chapter who ran this race before us, right? Who ran by faith and trusting in the promises. But it's also this here right now. You know the cloud of witnesses? There's one right here too. This is why we need one another. We don't do this in isolation. One of the greatest uh, detriments of, of evangelical Christianity is that it's taught people that their faith is personal and private. It is neither. We do this together. We build one another up. We strengthen one another. We cheer one another on. I need your support. I need your encouragement. You need mine. We need each other's to run this race with endurance. Right? We need that. So we have a great cloud of witnesses that we can look to that are running the race together with us. And when one stumbles, we, there's others who can come around and pick them up. And the only way we can strip off this weight and the sin that is hindering us so we can run and train naked like we're supposed to, spiritually, not physically, right? He's saying here it's a possibility. We can run the race with endurance. But how does that come? 
How can we do that? Look to Christ. Consider Christ. Ah, here's where we need to know the word, isn't it? Here's where we need to know what Christ has done for us. How do you know that, that you're free from sin and can walk in that freedom? Yes, we have the witness of the Spirit, but God's word declares this to us. We need to strip off that sin, not in our strength and power, but by looking to Christ. And I know some people get bothered with that, with that sometimes, that exhortation, look to Christ. But guess what? You don't grow in godliness without looking to Christ. Because if you look to yourself, if you look to your own strength, you are doomed. You are doomed. So he says, look to Christ, the author, the founder, the perfecter of your faith. Look to the one who endured hostility, who endured scorn and shame and was mocked. And when he looked to the cross and what he had to endure, he did it with all joy. He did it with the joy, the joy set before him, the joy set before him. It's you and it's me and everyone he would redeem and purchase by his blood. So we can have the confidence that we can run this race with endurance because we're looking to him. And we're surrounded by those who are also looking to him and are going to continue to encourage me to look to him and to consider him the one who endured because he endured, I can endure. And because he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that means he is ruling with all authority and with all might and with all power. So there is no doubt as to our success in this life and in the life to come, brothers and sisters. No doubt whatsoever, Christ will succeed in bringing us all to glory in our pursuit of godliness.